I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 28 this morning. Under the heading, Resurrection Realities. I am so glad you're here and I think and I hope that most all of you, if not all of you, are here because you're seeking the truth. I'm sure you're like me. I am so tired of being lied to. I'm tired of being lied to about this COVID pandemic. I'm tired of being lied to about systemic racism. I'm tired of being lied to about illegal immigration. I'm tired of being lied to about how the government is going to spend our money. I'm tired of being lied to by the media who has become basically the mouthpiece of liars. Of course, Satan is the father of lies, right? He was a liar from the beginning. And how refreshing it is to come and to hear truth. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And in John 17, before he went to the cross, he prayed to the Father and he said, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. So we're here to to immerse ourselves in the truth, especially the truth of the gospel as it relates to the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A resurrection that guarantees the same for all who put their faith in him. Now the topic of the resurrection is both vast and deep, a mind-blowing reality in the past that anchors us to our hope in the future. On several occasions I have had an opportunity to visit what is believed to be the garden tomb where Jesus was laid, and each time I'm there, I'm overwhelmed to think of what actually happened there and what that means for for all who love Christ. I mean, it's utterly astounding. And what a terrifying majesty accompanied his resurrection. I think of Matthew's gospel in chapter 28, verse 2, we read, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And after his resurrection, the Lord Jesus appeared to many who knew him prior to his death. They were therefore credible witnesses that would affirm the fact that they saw that self-same Jesus who had been crucified and laid in the tomb, that they saw him with their very eyes. And the gospel accounts reveal, as we read earlier, that Mary Magdalene was the first to discover the empty tomb in the dark. And utterly bewildered, she runs to Peter and to John at John's home in Jerusalem. And then Peter and John run to the tomb to see for themselves. And there they discovered that the grave clothes were still tightly wound around what used to be a body, lying there undisturbed the face cloth neatly folded and placed by itself. That was certain proof that a resurrection actually occurred. Think about it. Somehow Jesus dematerialized and passed through the grave clothes, through all the layers of spice, and through the stone sepulcher. But they had no idea where he was. So they returned to Jerusalem probably to tell Jesus' mother what had happened. And then as we read, Jesus later comes to his disciples, all of them minus Thomas, who doubted their testimony. And then eight days later, Jesus appeared to them again, 
with Thomas who saw for himself the nail-pierced hands and the spear-pierced side, causing him to say, my Lord and my God. Now, as you would imagine, the testimony of these people really gained them nothing. Instead, they placed themselves in jeopardy of the religious elite of Israel and of Rome, who concocted a ridiculous theory that somehow the disciples came and stole the body, that the resurrection never happened. According to Matthew 28 in verse 11, we read how the chief priests and the elders bribed the soldiers with a large sum of money to tell the people. Can you imagine leaders doing that type of a thing? You laugh because we're used to it. And here's what we are told. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And then they said, now if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Beloved, I might add that false religion and secular government have always been the greatest enemies of the church. And that will continue until the Lord returns. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, referring to himself, he appeared to me also. Moreover, we read in Matthew 27, verse 52, that when Jesus died, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. By the way, nothing is said about them. Evidently, they received a glorified body and, and then quickly returned into heaven. They were only on earth probably long enough to somehow validate the resurrection. Obviously, this was a miracle that God performed to adorn the resurrection and provide a preview of coming attractions for all believers, right? So the Lord made sure to give overwhelming and compelling evidence of his resurrection because it's so central to our faith. It is at the very core of what we believe as Christians, the bedrock of our faith and our hope. In fact, Christ's resurrection is so convincing that numerous skeptics that mocked it, people who have been filled with prejudice, after they have examined all of the facts, renounce their unbelief and confess Christ as Savior. We, I could tell you many stories of that. Well, on this Resurrection Sunday, I wish to immerse us in some of the magnificent truths concerning the implications of Christ's resurrection for the redeemed, resurrection realities. And we're going to do that by looking at 1 Corinthians 15 beginning in verse 20. So follow along as I read our text. The Apostle Paul says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For is, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is expected who put all things in, subjected, in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. 
Now here the inspired apostle provides for, for us some astounding truths related to the resurrection harvest that is to come. Three phases of resurrection that, that I hope will thrill your heart. By way of an outline, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at, number one, the resurrection of Christ, the first fruits. Secondly, the resurrection of those who belong to Christ. And then finally, the restoration of all things in the kingdom of God. What a wonderful topic for we as believers to dwell upon in a world that has gone mad with sin, all of the chaos and the corruption as the world is being prepared for the rule of the Antichrist and the false prophet. So first of all, let's look at what the word says regarding the resurrection of Christ, the first fruits. Now let me give you a little context here. In verses 12 through 19, the apostle carefully delineates seven absurd theological consequences that would occur if believers were not raised from the dead like Christ. If we deny the promise of a bodily resurrection, he says, first of all, that Christ would not have been risen, the preaching of the gospel would be meaningless, faith in Christ would be worthless, all who witness the resurrection and all who, who preach it are liars, all men would die in their sins, all former believers would have perished eternally in their sins, and finally, Christians would be the most pitiable people on earth, that our message, our beliefs would be nothing more than a charade, just a sick, ridiculous joke. Then he says this in verse 20, but now Christ has been risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who were asleep, referring to the righteous dead whose spirits have gone to be with the Lord but whose bodily remains await recomposition and resurrection. By the way, don't fall for the deception of soul sleep. Some people teach this, like the Seventh-day Adventist, that souls uh, just go into a state of unconscious existence until the resurrection. I, I might add that the Greek term for asleep, um, koyamao, uh, is often used to describe believers who have died. First Thessalonians 4.14 speaks of those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And then the apostle goes on to identify who they are in verse 16, the dead in Christ. Second Corinthians 5.8, Paul says, And I say, I prefer rather to be absent from the Lord, or absent from the body, and to be at home with the Lord. Not absent from the body, and put into an unconscious state until my body is resurrected. In fact, Christ comforted the repentant thief on the cross. Remember, he said in Luke 23, 43, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. He didn't say, today you will go out of existence in a state of unconsciousness until the resurrection. So Christ is the first fruits of those who are asleep in Christ Jesus. Now, this does not mean that Jesus was the first to be resurrected from the dead. I might remind you that both Elijah and Elijah raised someone from the dead. In fact, in 2 Kings 13, a fascinating story, we read of a man who was raised from the dead when he came in contact with the bones of Elisha. The widow of Nain's son was raised by Jesus in Luke 7. Jairus' daughter was raised by Jesus in Luke 8. Lazarus was raised by Jesus in John 11. Dorcas was raised by Peter in Acts 9. And Eutychus was raised by Paul in Acts 20. But unlike Jesus, catch this now, all these people died again. Only Jesus himself was the first to be raised to never die again. Now let me give you a little background on this idea of first fruits, because this is foreign to our culture and our way of thinking as New Testament saints. If we were to go back into the Old Testament in Le Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 10, we read how God commanded his covenant people, Israel, to do something very important 
before they harvested their barley crops. They were required to bring a representative sample of that crop to the priests as an offering to the Lord. And that offering was called the first fruits. This symbolized the consecration of the whole harvest to God and was a, a pledge of the whole harvest to come. So, understand this now. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits. In other words, the first installment of the harvest of the elect, the redeemed, those who are asleep in Christ Jesus. We are the ones that are considered ultimately the full harvest. And this is so exciting. I, I, you just have to get cranked up about this. And I'm not the real emotional type, but inside I am. You won't see it on the outside a lot, but this, this really turns my crank when I think about it. It's really amazing to think that Christ's resurrection didn't occur in, in isolation, um, as if it had no impact on the rest of the harvest. And to think that those of us who know and love Christ are part of that harvest. You see, he was the first fruit of the rest of the harvest that already existed. Think of that. The harvest already existed. You see, you can't have a first fruit if there's no other fruit, right? If there's no existing crop. And that existing crop was and is the elect of God that has, has existed in eternity past. There is absolute certainty in all of this. You see, Christ wasn't some special type of, of seed planted all alone in a separate garden that grew up all alone and died and rose again. That's not how it works. But rather, think of this now, he was and is part of all of the seeds that are united to him in saving faith. Jesus said in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And in verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So again, Christ is the first fruits of those who are asleep. And we should find great comfort in this reality, especially when we see loved ones who are asleep in Christ. Now, although their soul is in heaven, enjoying the unfathomable splendors of glory, their body, which was fatigued, as we get older, we all understand that, their body, which died and decomposed, Perhaps it was diseased and disabled. It was all used up. It's in the grave. Perhaps it's scattered over, over the earth. There's all kinds of ways that bodies get scattered. But we know that one day the DNA of that decomposed body will be recomposed by the Creator. And that body will wake up in unimaginable power and glory and be united with its glorified soul. Unbelievable. The Prince of Preachers in 19th century London, Charles Spurgeon, stated this in his own inimitable way when he commented, quote, the righteous are put into their graves all weary and worn, but such they will not rise. They go there with the furrowed brow, the, hallowed, the hollowed cheek, the wrinkled skin, but they shall wake up in beauty and glory. The old man totters thither, leaning on his staff. The palsied comes there, trembling all the way. The halt, the lame, the withered, the blind, journey in doleful pilgrimage to the common dormitory, but they shall not rise, decrepit, deformed, or diseased, but strong, vigorous, active, glorious, immortal, the shriveled seed so destitute of form and comeliness shall rise from the dust a beauteous flower. A green blade all fresh and young shall spring up where before there was the dried, decayed grain. 
You see, death is always a great symbol of sowing. We read this, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, 42. Paul says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, but it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Beloved, the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ exceed the importance and the power and the potential of all other events in history. It is rivaled only by the actual creation of the universe. You see, within the resurrection body of Jesus Christ existed the supernatural power source of eternal life, of God's everlasting kingdom, and a mystery beyond our capacity to understand Think of this, he dwells within the redeemed. He has redeemed us that he might inhabit us. We exist in him. Colossians 3.3, our life is hidden with Christ in God. And Paul says in Romans 8.11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Oh, child of God, think of this. Dormant within the resurrection body of the Lord Jesus Christ that appeared to Mary was the seed of resurrection glory for all whom the Father had given him in eternity past. The infinite power source of the universe and God's everlasting kingdom. Dear friend, If you're united to Christ in saving faith, if you truly love him and submit to him as the Lord of your life, you are like a nuclear warhead awaiting detonation, detonation into glory, unimaginable power and glory. As the old Scottish preacher William Still put it so well, quote, He is the embryo of all that one day will exist outside of hell. All that does not belong to him in his resurrection body and issues not from him will be burned up one day. Only that which is transformed by his coming power and glory will remain. The potential of that new Christ that stood before Mary at the first so that she mistook him for the gardener, is the source of all that will survive the original creation when it is burned up and reconstituted. And it is the Holy Spirit sent from him, belonging to him, and enshrining all the virtues of his victory over all evil who dwells in your poor heart and mine. What a precious and comforting thought it is for every child of God. For this reason, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, Therefore, therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And for this reason, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11.1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You see, in Christ, we have a whole new form of existence. We become a new creature in him. And his body was made perfect. It was no longer subject to weakness or death, but it was able to live eternally. He, as the apostle said, put on immortality. And like his resurrection body, we too will be raised imperishable in glory and power, a spiritual body. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 and following. Think about this. We're going to have a body like Christ's. 
one fit for heaven, one that's no longer subject to sickness and death, no more shame because of sin, no more frailty and temptation, no more limits to time and space as we have here now. So the power contained in the resurrection body of Jesus is infinitely powerful. For it houses the omnipotent power of our creator God who dwells within us. And one day we will behold that body and what a thrill that will be. And we will see a body that looks many ways just like ours. For from his glorified body will emanate the effulgence of his celestial majesty the resplendent light of his glory will braze forth with more brilliance than the sun and to think that Christ once again is the first fruits in other words a precise sample of the rest of the harvest that already exists that will also come which means our resurrection bodies will in many ways be just like his minus the incommunicable attributes of God that are his alone. Beloved, remember these things the next time you see a corpse lying there in a coffin, perhaps one of your loved ones. Look beyond the dreadful marks of decay, assuming they know Christ. If they don't, you want to turn away. But if they know Christ, you can focus on the transformation from the corruptible that is passing away to the incorruptible that's going to take its place. And for this reason, we should never wish anyone to come back, right? We rejoice where they are. We celebrate that. Knowing that while the body is now asleep, there's going to be a great gathering of believers, both dead and alive, at the rapture of the church. Now next, Paul goes on to explain the profound implications of Christ's resurrection on all who are united to him in faith. Notice verse 21, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ we will be made alive. Two men, two acts, two consequences. We know biblically that Adam was the head of the old creation and Christ is the head of the new creation, the firstborn from the dead, Colossians 1.18. He is therefore the preeminent one, um, the, the one of highest rank. He is the firstborn, in Greek the prototokos, which was the, referred to the ranking son that received the, the right of inheritance from his father, even if he was born first or not. So Christ possesses the right of inheritance over all creation. We know that he existed before creation. He was the creator and he is exalted in rank above it. Now notice again, two men, two acts, two consequences. And Paul speaks of this in Romans 5 verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, referring to, referring to Adam, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. In other words, through Adam, because of his sin, in some inscrutable sense, all men, save Jesus Christ, actually sinned in Adam. Not personally, but really. The sin thus committed by each person was imputed to each one. Therefore, each of us stand guilty. We stand condemned before God. All men, save the virgin-born Jesus Christ, actually took part in Adam's sin in some inscrutable way that God doesn't explain to us. And thus, as a result of his own sin in Adam, not in the sin of any other person, every human being stands condemned. Every human being possesses a fallen nature, which, if a little one is allowed to live, will manifest itself in sin. Now, some believe that verse 22 teaches universalism, that everybody goes to heaven. That's kind of what our culture is like today. It says, after all, 
Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But frankly, to affirm such a heresy, one must deny all of the other passages that speak of reprobation, that speak of hell, that speak of judgment. Every descendant of Adam, you see, is included in the all of the first phrase, in Adam all die. In other words, to be in Adam is to be human. However, to be in Christ requires a man to be what? Born again. We have to be born again. Therefore, those who belong to Christ by means of a new birth are his supernatural spiritual descendants possessing the imputed righteousness of Christ. And because of this, all, in other words, all who have been given life spiritually shall be made alive. In other words, they will be raised bodily from the dead. So the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, radically reverses what the first Adam initiated in world history. And today we wait not only for our personal resurrection, but the new world to come in the messianic kingdom when the earth will be renewed, totally renovated, fashioned once again into the splendor of Eden And then at the end of the millennium, we know that God, according to Scripture, is going to uncreate the heavens and the earth, and he's going to recreate a new heaven and a new earth. What a glorious future awaits those who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Secondly, we look at what Paul says regarding the resurrection of those who belong to Christ. He says in verse 22 at the end, In Christ all will be made alive, verse 23, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ, who are Christ at his coming. And Paul goes on to describe uh, the rest of the harvest of which Christ was the firstfruits. Notice he says, each in his own order. Term order there, togma in the original language is a term used in a military context to describe uh, the arranged order of troops. And here we see once again that God is both orderly and purposeful in all that he does. And so here we learn the order of the resurrection. Here's the order of what is going to happen. It really comes in three stages at Christ's coming. Again, Christ is the first fruits, but, and then he says after that, those who are Christ at his coming. In the first stage, as we look at Scripture, we will see that those who have come to saving faith from Pentecost, the birth of the church, to the snatching away or the rapture of the church will be joined by living saints. And this will include, therefore, the resurrection of of church saints, both dead and alive, at the rapture. When, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And then the second stage is that of those who come to faith during the time of the tribulation. Most of them, we know, are going to be martyred along with the Old Testament saints who will be raised to reign with Christ during the millennial kingdom. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 4, speaks of this. There we read, And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the prophet Daniel speaks of the Old Testament saints in Daniel 12 and chapter, chapter 12 and verse 2. There we read, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life. I might add that Isaiah 26 verses 19 and 20 speak of this as well. He went on to say, however, but the others referring to the rest who are unsaved to disgrace and everlasting contempt. I might add that in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, there is an explicit reference to the fact that there will be a a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. 
Then the third stage, what Paul calls the end in 1 Corinthians 15, 23, will be those who died during the millennium, the millennial kingdom. Many people ask me, what's going to happen to them? Well, the scripture doesn't really say. They will probably be instantly transformed at death into the resurrection bodies. But we don't know for sure. And then, of course, the only people left to be raised will be the ungodly. A horrifying thought. And we know that that occurs at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, the great white throne judgment described in Revelation 20 which will be followed by an eternal hell. Those without Christ will receive a resurrected body suited for the torments of solitary confinement in hell. In Acts 24, verse 15, we read, There will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. John describes a resurrection of life and a resurrection of judgment in John 5, 29. But child of God, don't miss this. Today we not only celebrate the resurrection of our Savior, but also the implications for all of the redeemed, which includes those of us here today. Romans 8, 23, we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. Our redemption includes more than just our soul and spirit. It includes our bodies. And this will occur when Jesus returns and raises our bodies from the dead. And of course, glorification is the final stage of all of this, all of this process of redemption when he fashions for us a new glorified body and reunites us to our soul. What an astounding thing to think about. To know that the seed of our DNA will one day blossom forth into eternal perfection. Divine holiness, glory. And again, Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection harvest. His resurrection guarantees ours. Likewise, we will be given a glorified body like his, for he was the prototype. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. John tells us in 1 John 3 and verse 2, when he appears, we shall what? We shall be like him. We're going to see him. We're going to be like him. Paul stated in Philippians 3.21 that Jesus will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Beloved, there is going to be a supernatural metamorphosis, an instantaneous recreation. And this makes all of the suffering of this life kind of pale into insignificance, doesn't it? When you think of what awaits us. It's for this reason that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied. Folks, never forget that as believers, we are united to Christ in every aspect of the work of redemption. I know I'm giving you a lot of theology, but I want you to get these things, even if you have to listen to this a dozen times. We, we have just gotten so dumbed down that as Christians, we just don't know anything anymore. But you must understand that in every aspect of redemption, we are united to Christ. The scriptures teach us that we have died with him. We have been buried with him and we're resurrected with him. Paul said, it is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And while we await our glorified bodies, the true essence of the glorified saint is, is concealed to the world. Because again, our life is hid with Christ in God. I'm going to age myself a little bit here. When I was a boy, I used to watch Superman. Clark Kent, the mild-mannered reporter. And somehow... As I learn to understand all of this about the resurrection, I kind of see myself as Clark Kent and other believers as well. I look like a normal person, 
or kind of. But underneath this mild-mannered preacher is Superman and superwomen because of Christ. That's the idea. Peter says that we have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 1 Peter 1, 3. And of course, Jesus' resurrection is explicitly connected with our regeneration, with the new birth. You see, when Jesus rose from the dead, he had a new quality of life, a resurrection life in a human body and human spirit that were perfectly suited for eternal fellowship with God. In his resurrection, he earned for us a new life just like his. And when we come to faith in Christ, when we are born again, when we are transformed, we receive that resurrection life, that eternal life in our spirits. And we are made alive with with new resurrection power. And one day, our resurrected bodies will follow suit. And folks, hear this. This resurrection power of Christ is the spiritual power that is now, right now, at work in you. Right now, it is at work in you. Paul prayed for the Ephesians that they would know, in Ephesians 1.19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power in us who believe. The idea of right now. According to the working of his great might, which he accomplished in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and made him sit at his right hand in the heavenly places. You see, the resurrection power that we have right now includes more than just the power to gain victory over remaining sin in our lives. And certainly that can happen. I mean, Paul tells us that sin will have no dominion over you in, in Romans 6.14, but it, it also includes the power to ministry, to, the, the power to, to put the glory of Christ on display in our life as we serve him. And in conclusion, we see as well, not only the resurrection of Christ, the first fruits and the resurrection of those who belong to Christ, but finally, Paul speaks of the restoration of all things in the kingdom of God. And folks, this is where history is headed. It's so good, isn't it, to know that the creator is in charge, not man. Aren't you glad that we have that hope so we don't panic thinking that the godless men and women that are in authority over us that believe things that are utterly absurd? Aren't you glad to know that someday all of that will be over? Never forget, there is nothing that man nor demon can ever do to thwart the kingdom purposes of God. One day soon, he's going to snatch us away as his bridal church. We know prophetically that he's going to pour out his wrath upon the nations of the world that mock him. He's going to finish his judgment upon unbelieving Israel. He's going to spiritually save a remnant of them and physically deliver them as he has promised all through scripture. Along with, by the way, many Gentiles who will come to faith in Christ, even in the tribulation, only born again believers will populate the kingdom at first. And then ultimately Christ is going to rule the world. He's going to take back from Satan what, was, what he allowed to be taken from him and he will rule with perfect righteousness I love what Habakkuk the prophet said in Habakkuk 2.14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Oh, how I long for that day. And then back to our text in 1 Corinthians 15.24, Then, in other words, after this comes the end. Now, be careful here. End is telos in the original language. It's not referring to the end in terms of ultimate finality, but in terms of completion, that which is finally fulfilled, that culmination time, specifically after the church is snatched away at the rapture and the pre-kingdom judgments have occurred during the tribulation, at the end of which uh, the tribulation saints who have died and the Old Testament saints have been been resurrected, Christ and Christ will reign for a thousand years upon the earth 
as the rightful king, then comes the end, Paul says, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Folks, this is why Jesus has asked us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Dear Christian, Jesus Christ is going to abolish all rule and all authority and power. We read the specifics of this in in Revelation chapters 5 through 20. He's going to take back from the usurper that which is rightfully his. Back to Paul's word here in verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Ancient kings used to do that when they conquered Another ruler, they would put their foot on their necks as a demonstration of total dominance. And Paul then says in verse 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. And we know that Christ abolished death on the cross when he broke the power of Satan. Him who had the power of death, Hebrews 2 and verse 14. And his resurrection from the dead was the first fruits of, again, that resurrection harvest. Then he says in verse 27 here, 1 Corinthians 15, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? Though Jesus was co-equal with the Father, the Son was voluntarily subordinate to the Father during the mediatorial kingdom. But when the Son's work of redemption is accomplished, His kingdom is going to merge with the Father's, with whom He is one. And that's why Paul goes on to say in verse 28, when all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. In other words, in perfect Trinitarian harmony, Christ will continue to reign in his kingdom that will have no end as the angel promised Mary in Luke 1.33. Well, let me close by giving you a summary that I hope will wrap all of this up and encourage your hearts as we think about the implications of the resurrection. Beloved, in eternity past, the Father ordained a plan to demonstrate His love for His Son. And in that plan, He chose a bride to give to His Son, made up of undeserving sinners who he would one day save and transform by his grace. And he chose that bride by name, and he wrote their names in the book of life. Names that make up the son's bride, an elect group of redeemed humanity, pledged to him by the father's love, a gift from the father to the son, a pledge that was sealed by the Holy Spirit. And then over the course of redemptive history, the Father intentionally drew unto himself this great company of sinners through the convicting and regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, resulting in them worshiping and glorifying the Father who chose them and drew them and worshiping the Spirit who convicted them and transformed them, and worshiping the Son who purchased their redemption. And central to this whole predetermined plan of inter-Trinitarian glory and love was the Son's death. The Son had to be the perfect substitute for sinners, the perfect propitiation, the perfect satisfaction of divine wrath, in order for sinners to be reconciled to a holy God. And these are the ones Jesus refers to when he speaks of those whom the Father has given me. And after the sons returned to this earth as King of kings and Lord of lords, 
after he has dethroned the usurper Satan and rules over his earthly kingdom for a thousand years, the son will give back to the father all that was given to him as a reciprocal expression of his love for the father. When he, as Paul said, referring to Christ, hands over the kingdom to thee, God and Father. Oh, dear Christian, be humbled by these redemptive truths, especially as we think about the resurrection and all that that means for us. And for those of you who have never come to a place of repentant faith in Christ, may it never be said in this life or the one to come that you were not warned. One day, you will receive a resurrected body and it will either be one suited for heaven or one suited for hell. If you reject Christ, you will pay for your sins eternally. You too will receive a new body. So I plead with you as a minister of the gospel to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Make him the Lord of your life. Don't fall into the trap that so many do these days of some cultural Christianity or just being indifferent to the whole thing. Because these are words of truth and you are being warned today by the Lord's servant. So take heed. And for those of us who know and love Christ, let me leave you with just a simple challenge. Let's all get really serious about living consistently with who we are in Christ. To be obedient to his will and his word. To live out the glory that is ours. To let our life be a living sermon of God's transforming power. And all that we have in Christ so that others may also be saved. Let's live in such a way that that our lives are a constant celebration of our risen Christ. The first fruits of of the coming harvest to which we belong. And then, with great sincerity, we can all pray as we are commanded to, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths that you have revealed to us through your word. I pray that everyone who has heard them today will take them seriously, especially those that do not know Christ. Overwhelm them with such conviction that they have no rest on their pillow until they come in humble obedience and ask you to save them on the basis of Christ's shed blood and resurrection. And for those of us who know and love you, Lord, use us mightily for the sake of the kingdom that we might enjoy the fullness of all that is ours in Christ and that others too might be saved. For it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.